Hi, my name is Ashish Gaviali. I am activist in residence at the Sarah Parker Redmond Centre and thank you for joining us for this podcast interview with Professor Dipesh Chakrabarti. Professor Chakrabarti is the Lawrence A. Kimpton Distinguished Service Professor of History, South Asian Languages and Civilization at the University of Chicago. He was a founding member of Subaltern Studies, was the winner of the 2014 Toynbee Foundation Prize and the 2019 Tagore Memorial Prize. His books include The Crises of Civilization, Exploring Our Global and Planetary Histories, and The Climate of History in a Planetary Age, which was published earlier this year by the University of Chicago Press. It's about the idea of the planetary that we are going to speak today. Professor, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I was really keen to talk to you because I am fascinated by the concept of of the planet or the, the planetary and I kind of thought that you were an important thinker on this subject to engage with. Well, I try. <laughs> I mean, for my benefit and for, and for all of us, maybe we could start with, you know, basics. What is the concept of the planetary? And for you, in, your, in terms of your intellectual trajectory, how did you come to it? So, I mean, in a way, you see, from the 1980s, particularly from the 1990s, social scientists and humanist scholars who've been studying colonialism, post-colonialism, questions of racial and other kinds of difference, have been focused on the global as a way of either understanding empires or understanding the local, understanding migration, understanding the global itself as an imperial arrangement, as Hart and Negri would say. For me, the planet as a category emerged from the, you might say, the the interfacing of two concepts or two expressions. One was globalization, of which the central category was globe, and the phenomenon of global warming, which uses the word globe, but I found that it uses it in quite a different sense. It's really exploring the differences between the globe of globalization and the globe of global warming. I felt in a way to rename that second globe, the planet, in order to make the distinction clearer between what I'm now calling the globe and the planet, uh, which is not to say, I mean, once I made the distinction, I also realized that in different contexts, humans have, both humans in general and theorists in particular, have thought about the planet. So it was not like I was the first person to use the word planet in talk about planetarity, there have been other discussions of planetarity, uh, but I didn't. I developed my own understanding of it along particular lines. But really was to indicate what happens to your thinking when you think globalization, the process of globalization, and the process of global warming together. And the globe and the planet for then, for me, became almost two vantage points from which to think about human history and the human condition in somewhat different ways. I mean, let's unpack that then. I mean, what does happen to your thinking? What has happened to your thinking by holding those two distinct concepts? Right. So first of all, I need to clarify that even though I think of them as distinct concepts, they're not concepts opposed to each other. So they don't constitute a binary opposition. So it's not an either-or relationship. In fact, I argue that historically, it's the intensification of the process of globalization that creates the planetary perspective. So in a way, the planet is an older entity historically than the global, but it kind of becomes visible to us through an intensification. As we tunnel our way through globalization, we kind of see it, whereas the object I'm calling planet 
existed before as objects of specialist knowledge, like geologists or earth system scientists or astronomers or you know others would have thought about it differently. So going back to your question, so what's the difference? The difference is there are many differences, but the key differences are these. That so the global is basically the story of how humans came to understand that the thing we live on is almost spherical and how we kind of made the sphere our domain of activity. So it's a story of Europeans inventing the technology to make ships that could negotiate the deep oceans so that they could then go to other people's land and take their land or their, steal their bodies as capacity, labor power, or set up factories or whatever, trade, set up trade connections. So the global is fundamentally a story of how we created this world, we kind of converted this planet into a spherical human domain, at the center of which is, are the stories of technology, empires, capitalism, inequality, those sorts of questions, and race, fundamentally. And some people now argue that the technology has become such a driver of human history that A, it connects us all over the world in different ways, and B, that one might now conceptualize, you know, even the planet in terms of there being a lithosphere, the, the rocky surface of the planet, a biosphere where life occurs, an atmosphere, a troposphere, a stratosphere. But they said, well, we should also imagine a thin technosphere kind of surrounding this planet. And they argue that without the technosphere, it would be impossible to sustain 8 billion human beings, lives of 8 billion human beings or 10 billion human beings. And one of the calculations suggests that if you took all this technology that's developed over 500 years away, then human population would crush to about 10 or 11 million. So their argument is that technology has become the precondition for biology. Is that a position that you agree with? It's a persuasive position. I, I'm, I'm not a technosphere specialist to be able to controvert the proposition in a way that somebody else studying technology and the history of it might. But clearly, if you look at, if you include medicine in technology and public health is part of that technology. So if you include the invention of the microscope without, without which the microbes would not have been seen, then clearly it makes sense to think of technology in that broad sense as supporting so many lives. Because the amazing thing about human population is that we were about 1.6 billion at 1900. And in 100 years, we went up to 6 billion. So it took us, see, Homo sapiens have been around, they say, for 300,000 years. So it took us almost that period to get to the number 1 billion. And then what happens that we suddenly jump to 6 billion and then to 8 now, maybe 9 or 10, before we stabilize? And also humans live longer. I mean, I was recently reading something about colonial Calcutta and privileged people, you know, really, really rich people, uh, their biographies, short collections of biographies. And people were dying at 39, 41, 49. Somebody who lived up to 60 was seen as having a very good constitution. So if you think of even the expansion of the longevity, just of the privileged, forget the poor, clearly public health, medical technology, all of things. So the global is a story of, it's a story about what human beings have done and therefore both to each other, but as well as to the planet, to the nat to nature. And therefore it's a human-centric story. But what happens through the intensification of globalization, and one part of this story of the intensification that interests me a great deal. Sorry, you asked a small question and I'm kind of carrying on, but no, it, would, it would probably help to 
at least do the groundwork for what we are going to talk about later. So at least to get the distinctions clear. So one part of the story of intensification of the global that interests me is the Cold War and the competition in space and the interest in atmosphere, the state of the atmosphere, so that you see the rise of atmospheric sciences, both in the Soviet Union, just before and after the war, and in the US. And this has to do partly with the explosion of nuclear bombs. So people, they were interested in the radiation fallout and measuring that. Partly to do with the competition in space, uh, which had military implications. Partly to do with the interest in the Soviet Union and the Americans had in uh, weaponizing weather, in experimenting with droughts, floods, if you could cause these things in your enemy's territory. So, and out of this, NASA was very much a part of this. Right, And in 1960, this British chemist, James Lovelock, the Gaia man, joined Carl Sagan's unit and worked there from, I think, 66 or 61 to 66. And one of their projects was to find out if Mars could be made inhabitable for humans, if Mars could be colonized or not. And, uh, and that led to a very interesting question among scientists who were mostly not biologists. But then, of course, biologists joined them, like Lynn Margulis, Carl Sagan's. And one question that came up was, so what is life? And how does a planet become friendly to life? And the only planet they could study to answer this question, even though the question, they were applying the question to another planet, was this planet. Because we don't know of any other planet, empirically, that sustained life over such a long period of time. So they began to look at life in, on Earth and this question of what sustains life on Earth as a way of thinking about what might sustain life on Mars. right? And so in a way, the planet became... Earth became part of a comparative study of planets. So if, there was, if you can think of something called comparative planetology, then this question arose, you know, why is this the Goldilocks planet? You know, the Venus is so hot, Mars is so cold, but we seem to be right. And when you investigate that question, you realize that in a way, different forms of life play a role in maintaining complex life. So one of the things that they talked about a lot is the nature of our atmosphere and the fact that you survive, I survive, because there's... The, the oxygen is 21% of the atmosphere. I mean, people who are dying from in the pandemic die because of breathing problems. They don't get enough oxygen. So we are oxygen-breathing animals. We are absolutely, this atmosphere is critical. And they worked out the atmosphere has maintained oxygen, roughly kind of, you know, at that level to sustain oxygen-breathing animals or even plants or, you know, creatures for 375 million years. So clearly this atmosphere that we depend on so critically wasn't created with us in view. It was created by different forms of life. It's still maintained by different forms of life, like planktons, fungi or bacteria or plants, you know, forms of life that humans normally have considered inferior forms of life. And it's amazing to see that they keep supplying the air with fresh oxygen because oxygen chemically is very reactive, so it doesn't stay as oxygen. So you have to keep supplying there with oxygen. And so if, for instance, uh, we heated up the planet so much that the average temperature of the sea is warmed by, let's say, 60 degrees Celsius, the planktons would die, the phytoplanktons, which means we'd be shutting off a source of the oxygen for ourselves. And to get to this, you know, technology was critical to the story, space exploration, satellite data, but also getting ancient air bubbles to know that the carbon dioxide concentration in the air is now the highest it's been in 800,000 years. And the only way you could do it was by boring into polar ice caps because you get this trapped air, ancient air. But how do you bore the ice caps? You bore the ice with the same technology that the oil companies use. 
So you can see the technology that's created global warming, that's helped to create global warming, was also being used in finding out data about ancient air. So that's why I say that it's the intensification of globalization that kind of led to this realization that the, there are processes that you might think of as planetary, which are both geological and biological nature, and that work in tandem to keep life going, which doesn't mean that it's eternally stable because it lurches from one condition to another, you go through extinctions of major forms of life. But you suddenly realize that there is this entity which is active, dynamic, almost systemic, Right? And NASA created a committee called Earth System Science in 1983. So it's this Earth as system that I call the planet. And the point is that the planet in its construction, look, these are both human construction. Humans have thought up these categories. But the global is a category to which the humans are central. Because it's all about what humans do to each other and what they do to nature. The planet, the Earth system, is a category which that decenters humans because in the story of geology and in the story of evolution of life, Humans come so late that you can't make humans the center of the story. I get it. So fundamentally, the difference that you're describing is one that is of ex- it's an experience, right? Like it's a it's a perception. Well, what I'm saying is for as a as a see, I'm not a scientist. So when I I read geologists and biologists and earth system scientists as kind of fellow historians, yeah, right, who work with different archives, different methods, yeah. So what I take from them are the conclusions on which they have provisionally agreed in spite of all the internal debates. Yeah. And I take that to then create two perspectival vantage points, right? One is human-centric, the other that decenters humans. One asks the questions exclusively about humans and what they, they do to each other. The other actually tells the same story about humans, but decentering them, right? It also tells the story about how the planet works. And the, and the scales are, time are very different. So. The global is 500 years old. The planetary is as old as the age of the Earth. And you have to remember that oxygen was toxic for the first creatures. So this oxygen did not become an important part of the Earth's atmosphere until 2 billion years ago. And so many creatures had to either die or dive underground, the nitrogen-fixing bacteria. That sometimes scientists call that oxygenation event, the oxygen holocaust. So if you looked at the story of the oxygen, in the air, from our point of view, it's a blessing. But if you look at it from the point of view of you know bacteria that subsisted mainly on nux, on nitrogen, it was a holocaust. So it sort of you know it shifts your perspective. Yeah. And for you, that relativity, what's that breed in terms of temperament? The experience is really one about the first experience was honestly surprise and shock because in the story we tell under the rubric of globalization and whether we tell a story about racism, struggle against racism struggle for socialism, struggle for human rights, struggle for democracy. And I was a historian completely of that stable, right? I mean, I was not trained to be a scientist. I mean, you know, I did some undergraduate science, but not. The experience was, first of all, of recognition that we have taken the world for granted, that the everyday givenness of the world, you know, you wake up and the street stands in the same place and the mountain stands in the same place. This realization that to take this as given, to take the world as given as it, as it seems to me, was fine so long as humans themselves had not become a geological force capable of changing the landscape of this planet. Right? Let me explain it this way. Take the, an artifact as common as a tourist guidebook. And what will it do? It will tell generations of tourists, travelers, let's say over the last, let's say since the coming of Thomas Cook, right? So over the last, you know, hundred something years. It has told people to go and visit the same site again and again. Go to that beach, you know, that mountain's beautiful, blah, blah, blah. Because in human terms, 
we take all that to be stable, right? But when your time scale expands, you suddenly realize how restless this planet is. And all that you take to be stable is very unstable. And when do you remember the instability of it, of mountains, for instance? You remember it today because of the crisis that this attitude of taking it for granted has produced. And my example of that is the Himalayas. There are so many projects. India alone is, there are more than a thousand projects of blasting the mountains, either to create dams or bridges or street or roads, or whatever that all the nations that possess the Himalayas, China and India in the main, are carrying out. And that are carried out, and the, and the kind of problems they're producing for human beings today, landslides, avalanches, the, those crises remind you that the, the, the Himalayas are a young mountain range. It's growing every year because you know the, the Indian plate goes and hits the Asian plate. It reminds you of all those geology, the crisis reminds you that you have to keep in mind that it's a very active mountain. And if you keep blasting it, then your blast can somehow multiply or act in sync with the instability of the mountain because of its youth. So what I'm saying, you know, before, I mean, in my book, I quote Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is a wonderful saying. He says, you know, humans look at a building and say, how old is it? Why don't you ever ask it of a mountain? No, that's because we think the mountain, for our purpose, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's always there. It's that kind of scalar shift that yeah. the globe and the planet does. And I suddenly began to see that unless we realize our geological agency and the geomorphological role we play, that is changing the landscape of the planet, we won't realize the depth of the predicament that we're in that you know, goes by the name of climate change or global warming or whatever. I mean, it's a, it's a profound predicament that human beings have fallen into. That's why I say that the human condition has changed. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by the human condition has changed? And actually, what can this awareness that you're describing actually point us towards tangibly in terms of the climate crisis? In terms of the human condition changing, one easy way of describing that would be to go to Hannah Arendt's book, The Human Condition, which was written in the shadow of the Sputnik, the Russian Sputnik going up. And Arendt ends the book thinking about the Sputnik. Thinking, what does it mean that human beings are looking at space? A first in human history, right? Desiring to be somewhere else, right? And and she actually says, well, now we have a guarantee that the species won't go extinct, even though we might suffer from alienation from the Earth because we are Earthlings. So, you know, just in the way that when migrants travel, I don't know where your family, where is your family from? Gujarat. There you go. So your family traveled, obviously, in a generation earlier to yours. You have a Paka English accent. And, you know, in my family, I'm the first generation migrant. And every migrant family goes to the experience, or most to the experience of seeing their children lose the language, right? The first generation experiences that. And there's a sense of loss involved with it. But we think of it as a trade-off, right? Okay, we think England doesn't feel like my country, you know, but my child will be better able to adjust to it, right? And, and maybe my child, he or she will have a better life than I did. And there are these small pains that actually parental generations endure and think of them as trade-offs we've made. Similarly, Hannah Arendt was thinking human species will be making a trade-off. We'll, we'll miss the earth, but we'll survive. Whereas today, the question has become an existential question. Will we survive? Because in taking the world for granted with our scale of technology, what we're also doing is hastening species extinction. So some people say that there might be the sixth great extinction in three to 600 years time. Some people argue that we are already in the first phase of it because, you know, three to 600 is nothing in geological time, right? It's a moment. And the experience of every extinction is that 
when the extinction happens, the dominant species may not go totally extinct. It might mutate. Um, dinosaurs survived as birds, you know, the aviatory dinosaurs, but it doesn't dominate anymore. <laughs> so instead of the moment of the Sputnik when Hannah Arendt think, okay, I can think it doesn't have a trade-off. I think there's a, now we're in a moment there are no trade-offs. I mean, Elon Musk's might say, you know, go to the Mar- go to Mars or whatever, but I don't think the solution actually exists because it's, I mean, it's not obvious that Mars is habitable or will be. So this is, that's why I say the predicament is deep because the global expansion of humanity for all the internal inequalities and battles and racism and class warfare and casteism and all of those things that have marked it has all have also you know that's it's also spoken to who could certain human notions of welfare well-being flourishing right if you look at the number of humans who consume purchase consumer gadgets if you think of them as the global consuming middle class so again interestingly we reached the figure 1 billion in 1986 or 85 then it took 21 years to this, add the second billion. Then it took nine years to add the third billion. And some seven to add the fourth. So you can see that not only are more people living better, but they're doing so faster and faster. And all this has an impact on other forms of life. And the pandemic is an example of what this kind of expansion of human, expensive, extractive human flourishing does to the planet. It destroys the habitats of wildlife. See, wildlife, I mean, most animals know to avoid humans. So when we get diseases from them today, we get them because we force them to come close to us, because we force them to lose their habitat. And, you know, 70% or 75% of the new infectious diseases last 20 years have been zoonotic, come from wild animals. And the destruction of forests has a lot to do with it. In a way, what's happened in the, over the last 200 years, say, Humans have lived so well, or as well as they've never done before. And if you could bracket the climate crisis and the environmental crisis, the pandemic, then a thinker like, you know, Steve Pinker from Harvard would say, fantastic, man, you know, the way to go. And our intelligence will solve all problems, you know. We are a very clever species. Technology will solve all problems. Don't worry about this, you know. We are doing better and better. But if you're not a Steve Pinker, and if you take this other crisis seriously, and what Earth system scientists are writing, biologists are writing, then you realize that we are in a deep, deep predicament because you can't ignore the question of human well-being, but at the same time, you can't afford this cost that we're currently paying to live well. It sounds to me like you're describing clearly in macro terms a moment of crisis and a kind of and a, and a language that we can grasp the nature of the crisis that we're in. It sounds to me as though this is also coming out of an experience of crisis. Like, you know, you talk about your own training, and it would be good to hear more from you about your background. I know that by background you're a Marxist historian. As you've articulated, this is terrain that is far from your background. I'd love you to tell me the story of the moment of that rupture. Personally speaking, the rupture happened in 2003. I was not a student of climate science before then. And if you ask what made you mm. go to this science, it was a very personal experience. And the deeply personal experience was this. So I went to Australia in 1970, end of 76, December. And I was, before that, I was born in Calcutta. I'd grown up in Calcutta. I didn't belong to a family that dreamt of sending their children overseas. I was a very middle-class family. My parents' dream would have been for me to have a good job, own a car, be affluent, but to be in Calcutta and look after them and live with them. And part of it, that was my desire too. It was not like it wasn't my desire, but other things happened. So I went to Australia to do my PhD 
and went to a city that couldn't have been more different from Calcutta. It was Canberra. You know, Calcutta was sort of so many millions of people. Canberra had 200,000 people. Calcutta was chaotic, you know, ramshackle trams. And Canberra was picture postcard clean, squeaky clean. The sky was a wonderful blue. And the wonderful thing about Canberra was that what the Australians call the bush nature or little hills and, you know, where you could go hiking, runs through the entire city. The city is built around, the suburbs are built around these mountains, little mountains. Almost every suburb has a mountain at the back, a hill, and you can go for a walk in the morning. And it's beautiful. And there are nat nature spots and stuff. So, and, you know, my Australian friends were all into outdoors. So they helped me discover something that I'd never discovered in my Bengali life in Calcutta, something called nature, outdoors nature. Nature that I loved in Calcutta was sort of in poetry, on screen, in something that we actually experienced. In 2003, a horrendous fire burnt about 300, 300 houses in Canberra, killed about, I don't remember, quite a few people, like in tens, 20s or 30 people, and destroyed all the nature spots and killed a lot of the birds and the animals. Canberra had beautiful, uh, it was like a bird sanctuary. And I felt totally bereft. So after I came to Chicago in 1995, ANU offered me a series of visiting positions for about 20 years. So I used to go back every year. And then I would drive to a waterfall outside of Canberra. I'd go to these spots, take friends, take visitors. Because that was my kind of going back from Chicago. Leaving Chicago in summer was like my journey into nature. And to see all that burned down and look like scenes out of Mad Max was gave me a deep, deep sense of loss and bereavement. And I grief. And, you know, people were scared of what's going to happen. There was a huge drought in Australia. There was a water scarcity. Water was rationed. You couldn't water your garden. And I saw Australians being scared. They were saying, maybe the land is too dry. Do we have to go somewhere else to live? Do we have to become a water importing nation? And that increased worries about security, war, blah, blah, blah. I saw a white, relatively affluent nation being totally scared. And it became, eventually in 2007, an electoral issue that brought Kevin Rudd as the prime minister in Australia signed the Kyoto Protocol, which they hadn't done till then, but I'm still talking about 2003. And Australia has a very good number of excellent environmental historians. And you know, when you go to Australia, it's very hard to ignore knowledge about the land. It just comes to you. So I knew that Australia had cyclical wildfires because the gum trees need fires to regenerate themselves. So they've been prehistoric fires. You know. So I went to my friends and I said, but why were these fires so bad? And they said, Dipesh, this is not an ordinary drought. This is climate change. And I said, what's climate change? And then I began to read up. And what blew, my, blew me away was the statement by many scientists that humans had become a geological agent. Now, I've grown up on E.P. Thompson and social history of the 1960s, subaltern studies, where we talked about looking on women as the agents of their histories, peasants as the agents of their histories. Now that word agent meant your capacity for autonomy, your capacity to project yourself programmatically out of yourself onto the world to do something. But a geological agent, the word agent has a very different meaning. It means almost a Newtonian force. And I thought, wow, these are two different, <laughs> same words, two different meanings. And that's how I came into it. So that's you know, what, I, what happened was I, I thought I was, I couldn't help thinking through the consequences of this realization for my thinking as a historian. And I wrote up whatever I felt thinking about 
these consequences. I wrote them up in my mother tongue, actually, Bengali first, because I had promised to an old teacher of mine in Calcutta that I would write something for his magazine every year. So I submitted this essay and he published it. And my friends in subaltern studies who were there and said, oh, you know, we don't think about these things. I mean, it's interesting, but not our problem. It kind of sank without a trace. When I came back to America and I was then on the editorial board of this journal called Critical Inquiry in the Humanities and, and the editor, Tom Mitchell, came to me and said, we're short of articles. Do you have something you can give to us? And so I wrote it up in English and, you know, adding more footnotes and made it more academic than the Bengali article was. And it read like, boom, it sort of, it, people were immediately interested. And in Europe, in Turkey, in it got translated Chinese, into in Latin America, in, so many languages the article got translated into. And then while well, I got a lot of appreciative reception, I also ran into a maelstrom of criticism. And there were people saying, what's this stuff to history? Why is he interested in species? This is all about capitalism. I had actually spoken about capitalism and, and its role. Uh, I'd actually said about the, that capitalism is the rabbit hole through which we fall into this uh, predicament. I had ignored capital. I actually even said that climate change will increase the inequalities, exacerbate them. But then I'd also said, but we, should, we have to kind of talk about the deep history, we have to talk about the history of our, us as a species and our relationship to other species. And many Marxists took umbrage at that. And they thought that to talk about species was to sidestep the question of who was responsible for greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, the rich people and the rich nations were. So I got intellectually pummeled. Uh, but I still didn't give up. I thought there's something about this exposure to deep history that these guys are not acknowledging. And that's how, so in arguing my position against these positions that I eventually came to the globe planet distinction, other people helped me. I mean, Catherine Malibu, the French philosopher, he, she first said, she wrote a very good critique actually of my article and Dan made the Harvard historian's book on deep history. And in that critique, I think it's the first thing that she was saying that look, the two words globalization, they don't mean the same thing. So those things kind of, acted as the first parks of ignition. But eventually I developed this idea of the planet mainly by reading into Earth system science. So my, the planet is very much what they call Earth system, with Bruno Latour in following and Tim Lenton in following James Lovelock, still called the Gaia. Uh, and there are interesting differences between Earth system and Gaia. So would you say that that has shifted in terms of the pushback from the kind of orthodox left? I mean, the, the kind well, of um, crisis is now, has now been mainstreamed in a way that it wasn't in 2000. Well, I mean, as the crisis gets deeper and deeper, it also becomes more urgent in a practical sense. And as Michael Mann, you know, the climate scientist, says in his book, that if you, if you really think that we first have to get rid of capitalism and in order to deal with the climate problem, then the climate problem is not urgent enough for you because we don't know when we rid of capitalism, but this problem is here. But also, I think... Some people, now that the book is out and I've had some discussions, it's also clear that some people are seeing more my point that I was not denying the role of capitalism or the role of inequalities or race or anything. But then also I find that, that in the social sciences or in the humanities, there are you know, two kinds of deeply personal relationship to knowledge. So some people, once they come at an understanding of the world that they're comfortable with, they basically want the world to go on affirming the understanding they've reached. And that's, it's a deeply personal thing. I'm not blaming, I'm not accusing them. I'm not belittling them. I'm saying your relationship to the, to the knowledge you have is a deeply personal relationship. 
So every time something happens, they go back and work on their Marxism. They might tinker with it, but the, their project really is to update Marxism. Whereas for whatever reason, temperamentally, I love it when the world ambushes me and shows some holes in my understanding because I kind of feel psychologically, and I'm not, again, defending myself. I'm just saying my temperament. But if you told me to live with the same understanding for the remaining years of my life, I would feel imprisoned. You know, I would find that to be a trap. Because I operate from the assumption that nobody gets it right. We never fully understand it. And it meaning everything else, everything that is around you, including yourself, your body, everything. And, and I think, therefore, understanding is a constant struggle. And one has to be open and, po- and, and be positive about the, the, the moments when your understanding breaks down. And for me, 2003 was a moment like that. So you talk about race, caste and class in terms of the body, in terms of the planetary body right. in, in your book. Right. Are you attempting to bridge the language of relations? And is that what you're trying to do there? <laughs> well, in a way I am, but remember that the, the massive amount of help came from this person I was discussing, Roy Zemula, who himself was a very interested reader of Carl Sagan. So he himself had a cosmological, scientific cosmological perspective in which he knew that his own body that the Brahmins felt disgusted about was actually made up like the Brahmins body of ancient molecules being recircular. So that's why he said that made up of ancient stardust, the glory of ancient stardust. See, one of, the, one of the fascinating things that now people study and people talk about, and my friend Julia Adeney Thomas was the first person to bring it out to our attention, the whole question of the human body and the microbiome inside your body. And the fact that your body is actually a kind of a nodal point for zillions of microbes inside you. And the fact that microbes make up the majority of forms of life by weight and numbers. So I wanted to sort of bring that knowledge to bear upon the very humanistic knowledge of inequality caste and race. I mean, caste and race are not the same thing, but they're connected in particular ways. Yes, so I was trying to do that in that chapter, but also trying to recognize the Indian practice of untouchability as a very perverse way of recognizing the connection between human bodies and the world of bacteria, (laughs) the world of death, dead bodies. So Dalits produce disgust in the Brahmins, let's say structurally, because they deal with either feces, which is about bacteria and stuff, waste products, or dead products of life right and in a way in kind of consigning that task relegating that task to a particular group of humans you know it's like this brahmins are this absurd attempt to separate ourselves from everything that is inside my body and outside but there's a peculiar perverse recognition of the connectivity and the point in my book is that we're becoming aware of this connectivity over the last 30 40 years medically in every other way right I mean, if you have ulcer, nobody is going to blame you. People are going to treat your microbiome for it. So we have known for a while, but we don't know how to politicize it. So in, in the political world, you still think of a Lockean personhood, right? You think of people as culpable. So we are becoming aware of this connectivity and Latour and Isabel Stengers and Jane Bennett and Donna Haraway. And these are all people trying to give us a language to bring this within the fold of the political. It hasn't happened yet. I mean, it's damn difficult to do because... The political has come out of very human constructions of time, space, relationships. And the political itself is so human-centric that we don't know how to make that which is not human-centric also political. So that's another question I, I raise in the book. Yeah, you've mentioned the Mueller, but actually you also write about Tagore. I was particularly interested to understand more from you about the significance of Tagore. 
Tagore, as you know, was a highly privileged person. I mean, by caste, they were Brahmins. I mean, they didn't acknowledge caste and also because the family had had some marital transactions with Muslims. So they were actually called Pirali Brahmins, like Pir Ali, a Muslim name was added to their Brahmin category. But he was clearly a high status person. And he was engaged in this debate where he had once claimed that while the sea did not know about him, he knew about the sea intimately. He was kind of acknowledging the sense of connection, but in a poetic cosmological register. And Rohit Vamula, coming from his experience of being treated as Dalit, comes to a cosmological perspective through Carl Sagan and his readings into scientific cosmology. But they're both using cosmology to dissolve the humanistic ego in them. So they're kind of acknowledging a bigger connectivity and trying to situate themselves as part of that connectivity. So I was sort of saying that, as you remember in that chapter, I was saying that Tagore is registering on a poetic note that his connectivity. Vemula is registering it on an emancipatory note that I want to be emancipated. But they're both pointing to a connectivity which we are now increasingly recognizing as factually true. I mean, your microbiome even has a role in producing the chemicals that produce the feelings you feel. So as Bruno Latour says jokingly, you think you are craving chocolates. It's your microbiome wanting some chocolates, right? So we're becoming aware of these things but we still don't know how to bring it into the political. People are trying. People are trying with extending human notions of rights, but it's not unproblematic. It creates other problems of who, who becomes the spokesperson. If you give human notions of rights to fish or animals or to rocks and stones, do you legislatively create permanent minorities because they can't vote, right? So there are all kinds of political theoretical problems. I'm simply saying, but we're at a moment it's a fascinating moment in human history where the knowledge of our connectivity is accumulating, increasing. And even the pandemic is a peculiar, is a negative way of finding it out, right? If you look at the pandemic, the crisis it produces is very human political crisis, problem of management. Should it be globally managed? Should it be nationally managed? These are all crises of sovereignty, the crisis of biopower that Foucault would have talked about. But at the same time, it's true that your body and my body has become an evolutionary pathway for the virus. And it's true medically that every time we've tried to deal with viruses, bacteria, the very means we have actually invented to deal with them have produced new evolutionary pathways for them because that's why you get antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So there is a history of life unfolding. And we are at the interface of kind of biopower, which contributes to human welfare. And life in general, you know, what Agamben would call Zoe, the merely reproductive life. The pandemic is at the interface, right at the interface. And the fact that we have become evolutionary pathway individually, our bodies are potentially, unless you get COVID, for the bacteria producing new mutants, new variants, means we are actually in the middle of an event in the history of life. But our political discourse is really about management. And that shows the limit of the political. And that shows how the planetary and the deep historical constitute a limit at the moment to our political imagination. And that's what Bruno Latour and other people are trying to break down. So where does it point? So the difference between Latour's position and mine would be that, well, in my reading, Latour, for instance, in his book on the politics of nature, he creates, he designs a space, you know, the parliament of things or whatever. He designs a space where we want to be. And my point is to say that I totally agree with the vision of this space. I don't know how to get there. And that pathway, I think, is a historical task that has to be created through our arguments, through our discussion, acting on particular projects in particular places. I don't think there's a grand highway that's going to open up. Human beings will get there because we are a species that eventually learns. I mean, we, we may not learn immediately. 
we learn through suffering, we learn through having lost, you know, but we learn, it's not that we don't learn. I mean, sometimes in, in our terms, uh, the learning happens at a glacial space. So we'll get there, but at the moment, I sometimes, you know, respectfully think of uh, Latour's text and other things as kind of Thomas More's utopia for our times. Right? But we need these visionaries. Whereas my project is really to map out the predicament, to understand the shift in the human condition from Hannah Arendt's time. But because if you think of ourselves as partaking differentially of the human condition, the changed human condition, if we acknowledge that, then we can still go on arguing about the differences in our, our political differences. So in, you know, in various ways, it's a question of where do you find a ground for coming together without giving up on the differences that you want to fight for? And, and that's why I thought in the book, I say I'm trying to produce a new anthropology, a philosophical anthropology. Remember at the end of chapter one, I actually say following Kant, and I'm not trying to solve the problem. I'm not trying to create policy, and I'm not an activist, at least in this book. I'm not thinking as an activist. Nor am I going to the question, what can we get from religion? Though I touch on that in the last chapter a little bit in terms of spirituality and reverence and all that. But I'm really trying to understand the shift in the human condition because it seems to me that the more we acknowledge the depth of this predicament, you know, the more we acknowledge our desire to flourish well. I don't make small of that desire. At the same time, how do we flourish as human beings without creating this problem for us? And there we have to acknowledge what kind of connections we have, that we come late, that we have become a dominant species. And you know, the, there's another way to come to the same problem. So I raised this question that if we are a minority form of life, and let's say the microbes are the majority forms of life, but we are in a situation where we dominate the hell out of them because we make other life forms go extinct and stuff. Then if you thought about it politically and purely human terms, then it's a bit like South Africa in apartheid times when a small minority dominated, a small white minority dominated, a huge black majority, right? Or, you know, if you looked at the way we gain knowledge about bacteria and viruses and protists and these little things, you'll find that we gain knowledge about them in order to control them, in order to defeat them, in order to manage them. If those were human beings, bacteria and viruses, then you would call it colonial knowledge. But they're not human beings. I'm not saying that the knowledge is unnecessary. But then you can see the problem that if similar things were happening between human beings, we could easily politicize them. You, know, you could easily say, hey, we need to develop minoritarian forms of thinking, or this is not the way to know our people, right? Just to manage them. That's Orientalism or that. But that's exactly what we do with respect to the other forms of life. So if you say, but Dipesh, we can't extend these categories to that domain, then I'll say fine. But I'm again coming back to my proposition that you are at the limit of your political in dealing with these things. I'm still trying to think my way through this question of how to develop minoritarian forms of thinking at a species level. <laughs> At a human level, at you know, how good one, what would it mean? And I'm trying to learn from people who thought about minority and from forms of thinking intra-human. So is that what you're working on next? Working would be glorifying what I'm doing, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah. What are you working on? I, I'm not working on a big project, but I'm trying to think my way through some of these problems. I mean, the problems that the book ends with in giving lectures, and I'm just trying to take my thinking a step forward. Well, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your time and, and you. talking with me. So your book is called The Climate of History in a Planetary Age. It's uh, published by the University of Chicago Press. I highly yeah. recommend it to all of, our, all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk.
forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.